All right, real quick. Anybody have trouble with the poll? It was looking weird on my f- screen. Or is every, are you guys good? Okay. Okay, too small. Okay, so you guys were able to do it. Awesome. Very good. Well, if you're new here, my name is Ricky, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians together. Uh, two things. First, if you are brand new to coming to church, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been to church, man, we want you to know you're welcome here. And one of the things that, that I, I hope you will experience here is that we are, by God's grace, training you and helping you learn to read the Bible for yourself. We don't want you to just come here and tell you, you know, hear what I think about the Bible or hear what Neil thinks about the Bible or Alec thinks about the Bible. We want you to see what's in the Bible for yourself, which is why we always open God's Word together. And I'm telling you exactly where I'm finding what I'm saying. Uh, And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love to give you a copy. You can take one of those Bibles on the back table. Um, The other thing I want to recommend is if you are in any position of leadership, especially Christian leadership, nonprofit leadership, that kind of thing, uh, I really, I've referenced it a number of times over the last few weeks, but this small book called The Cross and Christian Ministry by D.A. Carson is uh, Carson expositing the first four chapters or so of 1 Corinthians. I'd go so far as to say this is a required read. If you want to be a, a, a Christian, if you are a Christian leader or are des- aspiring to become a Christian leader, um, this is required reading. Uh, do yourself a, a favor and grab a copy of that. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, hopefully you're there by now. And let's see what the Lord has for us today. We're going to read the entire chapter and uh, we're going to go over it, not verse by verse, but section by section this morning. And let's remember, as we read, this is God's word. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign since, so that we might share the rule with you, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. Lord, I pray you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, may we today have our thoughts and what we look for reshaped according to your word. In your name we pray. In the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, like uh, many sports fans a number of years ago, I was fascinated by the book and the movie Moneyball. And if you're not a baseball fan, please don't turn out. Or, and please don't, like at this moment, decide to check ESPN and read up on uh, the, the, the playoffs now. This is not going to be helpful. But in Moneyball, it was a story of the Oakland A's and their famous manager, Billy Bean. And, uh, and, and the, the situation with the A's was that they did not have as much money as everyone else. And so the traditional thinking was they would never be as good as everyone else. They would never even make the playoffs because they couldn't buy these big name, big money players. But what Billy Bean's staff discovered was that most scouts, most baseball scouts were looking for the wrong things. They were looking for fluid, beautiful swings. They were looking for home runs. They were looking for swagger and confidence. They were looking for that intangible big league attitude. They would see things like, this guy has a lot of intangibles. This guy feels like a major league player. They were they, they looked good running. They could steal bases, right? All of that stuff that was in the swirl of stuff scouts talked about. Maybe even, well, they just had a lot of scouts watching them. So they must be good if they've got a lot of scouts watching them. Instead, Billy Bean and his staff pivoted to two different things. They looked for two different things, slugging percentage and on-base percentage. Basically, they looked through all the smoke and mirrors of Major League Scouting and, and just asked two questions. Can they hit the ball a lot? And second, did they create runs by hitting the ball a lot? Right, that's it. All the other metrics, not as important. And basically what they did is they built a team with undervalued players and competed at the top levels of Major League Baseball. And I think what the Oakland A's situation reveals is that sometimes what everybody is looking for in the world is the wrong thing. And sometimes everybody's looking for success with the wrong markers. Now, obviously we have a much more important question this morning than how do you win baseball games? The, the question I think at hand today in this text is how do you find a good leader? How do you identify a successful Christian leader? And how do you become a successful, godly Christian 
leader. Now, the reason Paul takes a detour to even discuss this is the Corinthians were, were judging leaders all the time, comparing Christian leaders all the time. They had separate fan clubs for Apollos, for Peter, for Paul. They, they had their favorite trading cards. Did you see first season Paul? Did you see second season Apollos? His new uniform, right? They, they, were, they were swapping and trading and comparing and they basically compared themselves to one another and said, our team is the best because our preacher, our leader is the best. But Paul points out, you're looking for totally wrong things here. You're absolutely looking at the wrong things. You don't understand Christian leadership at all. So I want to present to you from this passage the four foolproof secrets of amazing and highly successful Christian leadership. You might be thinking, is that, is he, for, is this real? Yes, this is absolutely real. This morning, the four foolproof secrets of amazingly successful Christian leadership. Now, that is tongue-in-cheek. But I state it that way because that's exactly the kind of thing the Corinthians would be looking for. They'd be going, oh, really? What are they? What are the four amazingly successful foolproof secrets of Christian leadership? I can't wait. Maybe you even walked in looking for that today. Maybe as a Christian leader, you're like, that's what I'm looking for today. Well, Buckle up, because Paul is going to help us see that we're often looking in the wrong place at the wrong thing. The first section, the first paragraph, their role. The role of the amazingly successful Christian leader. Now look at verses 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the first thing the Corinthians got wrong as they were looking at Christian leaders and leaders in general is they were looking for the wrong role. They were looking for a particular kind of leader. Now, in Corinth, to follow a leader meant, it was almost, it's an odd illustration, but it's almost like you would subscribe to your favorite thinker and leader in Corinth. And the leaders and thinkers in Corinth would, you'd, you'd pay them like basically a monthly fee. You'd defer to them. And, and the bigger the crowd that they gathered, the more income they had, the more deference they had culturally, the greater the leader was. So the Corinthians were always looking for who's got the biggest crowd, who's got the biggest, who's got the most successful, you know, pamphlet that's spreading, who's got this, who's got that. And Paul is saying, listen, you're looking at the wrong thing. And many times we look at the wrong thing today. We think of leaders the same way. How big is their company? How big is their church? What's their income? What are their sales numbers like this quarter? How many online followers are hanging on their word? This is what our world looks for. But Paul flips this completely on its head. He flips the org chart in a sense. And he uses a radical word in this context, servant. Now, the word servant here was, was the same word you use for the manager of a house. So they were the person buying and selling and organizing and keeping the pantry stocked and taking care of home maintenance. They were managing it for the owner of the house and property. And often, this was even a slave position, an indentured servitude position. So they had lots of responsibility, but they were not the one ultimately in charge. They were a servant. And similarly, in Corinth, the great teachers would, would, would not want to be servants, right? They, they were the opposite of servants. They were measured by their greatness in how many people served them. 
and they were at the top of the org chart. And Paul does two things that are radical here. First, he says, okay, one, you are not at the top of the org chart. That leader is not at the top of the org chart. They serve someone else. They serve the Lord. And in fact, as we'll see later, their service, their, their excellence in service is measured in how well they serve the Lord by serving other people as Jesus says in John 13. And so the org chart is flipped. It's not like all these arrows are pointing up to the person at the top. That's the direction of service, all going up. No, Paul says no. Two things are wrong with this. First, they're not the one at the top of the org chart. And two, all those arrows should be pointed down that they are serving everyone else. Then he uses another radical word here, steward. Steward. Now, this would have been in great contrast to the Corinthians again because in Corinth, the great teachers would, would reason and, and they, they always had to be coming up with a new exciting teaching, a new set of innovative ideas, a new spin on classic Greek philosophy and they would pass on this new teaching to their followers and their adherents and they would happily carry it around and Paul says, no, no. The great Christian leader is not a thought leader in the eyes of the world, not an innovator, not a brilliant creator of new ideas. The great Christian leader is a steward of what God has already revealed. Meaning, the great Christian leader is not coming down to the mountaintop with his own ideas. The great Christian leader is coming down from the mountaintop as a steward of what the Lord has entrusted to him. The ideas the Lord has entrusted to him. And then he adds this. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And he talks about how he doesn't even judge himself. He doesn't care how the world judges him because it is the Lord who judges me, he says. Meaning this, the performance evaluation ultimately is not popularity. It's not income. It's not worldly power. It is this. Does the Lord think that they've done a good job? Does the Lord as the owner of the house give them a good evaluation? Does the Lord as the one who entrusted them with what they steward believe that they're doing well? That's all that matters. Everything else is smoke and mirrors. So the first secret of successful Christian leader is this. Leaders is this. Serve others as God's steward. Serve others as God's steward. Now everybody has to evaluate themselves on some level. And everybody often uses different criteria for evaluating themselves. Some look to others to validate themselves. Some think, well, my friend like me. My friends like me, so I must be good. Or my, my daughter likes me or my spouse likes me. Some look to their accomplishments to validate them. Well, I have that degree on the wall. I did win top salesman at work this year. Some look to wealth and possessions to, eva- to, to validate them. I, I'm financially independent. I've got a bigger TV to watch the Cowboys lose than my neighbor. <laughs> Some look to power. Look at all the people I remember one person talking about, oh, I have so many direct reports. It's so busy, so busy. I've got so many direct reports. So many people report to me. It's just, I'm so busy all the time. I'm like, oh, how busy are you? Oh, I'm, just, I'm so busy. I've got so many people reporting to me. I mean, you wouldn't even believe it. It's, it's, it's 36. Uh, you know, you're just like, okay, all right, buddy. Right? They, they validate themselves that way. Or when I walk in at home, man, my family jumps to attention. Right? Like, okay, well. Now, are you... What are you using as your evaluative tool? What, what do you say, okay, this is what I use to evaluate myself? Well, look at these two categories Paul gives you. First, servant. You often see, according to John 13 and Jesus' words, whether you serve the Lord by 
whether you serve the, the people that the Lord has given you to serve. Meaning Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll serve one another as I am serving you. So the question then is, well, how are you doing with that? You can often measure somebody serving the Lord by how well they serve others. Would others describe you as a servant? Right? In your family, would that be the case? How, are you, how am I doing as a husband or a dad? You're a servant. Would that be the case? How am I doing as a mom? How am I doing as an employee? Would others call you a servant? And then second, steward. Would others describe you as a faithful steward of what God has given you? Are, are you especially taking care of what the teaching that God has entrusted to you as a Christian in his word? Are you, are you carefully carrying this? Are you being careful to follow and obey it? Are you holding it as precious? Are you stewarding it? It's the first thing to look for, serving others as God's steward in their role. Second category, second paragraph is what Paul says about their skills and abilities. Now, in the area of skill and ability, what do you look for in a great leader? Well, this is what Paul looks for in verse 6. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. And going beyond what is written, he, he basically means all the verses I've shared from the Old Testament about why you should be humble and not pursue rivalry. He's basically saying just don't go beyond what the scripture says about being humble and not being rivals. I don't want anyone puffed up. And then he, he uses this cutting question for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So the Corinthians were doing, were doing this. They were looking at their, the skills and abilities of their leaders and the skills, abilities of themselves and saying, look what I can do. Look at me. Right? Every human heart has this pull, doesn't it? The human heart either pulls toward, probably both at the same time, either I'm the best or I'm with the best. Or maybe both together. Meaning, I'm the best, look at my workout PRs. Right? Look at how organized my household is. Oh, I went to the other person's house the other day. It was a mess. You go home and you see your little bookshelf all nicely arranged with a little succulent there. You're like, oh, look at that. Or maybe I look at how I'm not like them. That They're a mess. That's a mess. Their life is a mess. Look at my income. Look at my connections. Look at how well-known I am. I'm, I'm the best. Or I'm with the best. I'm a minimalist, and I don't do any of that materialism stuff. I'm into shoes, and you've never seen a shoe game stronger than mine, right? Other people wish they could have this game, but they don't. I'm a homeschooler, but not just a homeschooler. I'm the best kind of homeschooler. I'm an American. I'm a patriot. I'm the best kind of patriot. And you don't even know the patriotic stuff that I listen to. I wake up listening to Fourth of July music, right? This is... Or I'm, my life is so organized. I'm practicing the seven habits of highly effective people. Or I follow this one lifestyle influencer and I'm using all the brand, I'm following all the brand, right brands, I'm using all the right products or I've got my Taylor Swift Eras t-shirt and vinyl and she leads my tribe, the tribe of Taylor. I don't even wonder what you call yourselves, but it's human, every human heart. I'm the best or I'm with the best because do you see what I can do? 
Or do you see what they can do? And yet Paul says, no. You're looking in the wrong place. You're looking in the wrong place. He asks this question, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Look, yesterday uh, I was at my son's soccer game and this other team just destroyed them a little bit. It was, it was a, a parenting moment. And one of the things that happened is they, this other, the other team had this, this goalie for a while that was just crazy tall. I mean, just for like the 12U, he was a huge kid. And so the kid blocks, I mean, he does a great job. He blocks the shots, come in right at the top of the goal, boom, just slaps it out. And you could just tell the, the look on his, his face is like, did you see that? Did you see that? But meanwhile, all the other kids are like this high, and he's like this high. And you're just thinking, dude, you just got your growth spurt before everybody else, right? <laughs> like, you may be saying something different in like two years, man. I was tall at age 12, okay? So just apply some appropriate humility here. The kid was boasting because he's like, you see how tall I am? Did he grow himself? No. Did he give himself freakishly long arms? No. Did he give himself a natural athletic ability and movement? Probably not. Maybe he worked on it a little bit, but look, man, at age 11, a lot of it is just is, is natural ability. And in the same way, we do the same thing. Look at what I have. Look at who I'm with. When Paul reminds us what you really should be looking for is the exact opposite of boasting. What you really should be looking for is an acknowledgement in leaders that all that they have and all that they are is a grace gift. Anything, friend, on your resume is a grace gift. Any diploma on your wall is a grace gift. Any paycheck you receive, as big or little as it is, is a grace gift. Anything that the leader you follow does is also a grace gift. It's not as though, oh man, look at this guy. He's got it all together. No, the Lord has gifted him in particular ways or her in particular ways. Anything they include you in is a grace gift. The point is this. Here's the second secret. Recognize that all you have is given to you by God. That's what you should be looking for in a leader. Not boasting, here's my resume, look at me, but rather, man, an acknowledgement that everything that they have is a, is a gift from God. Look, the best leaders are the most grateful people. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for the, the boasting, the bravado. You're looking for the most grateful people. And sadly, we, we've seen a number of high profiles, examples of, of domineering or arrogant Christian leaders over the last number of years. And often the, the, the issues with these Christian leaders were excused because they were quote unquote gifted or quote-unquote effective. But listen, gifted people, true, truly gifted people with the character of a true Christian leader are aware that any gifts they have truly are gifts and are therefore the opposite of arrogant. They're the most humble. Like I, I knew this one uh, Christian leader who was relatively well-known and uh, he had this email sign-off. He would sign off his emails with the email sign-off, grateful and amazed. And I, as, you know, as like a 19-year-old or 20-year-old, when I got an email from him, I was like, that is the cheesiest email sign-off I've ever seen. Grateful and amazed. You know, just like, ooh, like what Christian things can I put, you know? And, and I, just, I just dismissed it as like, that's so weird. 
But the more I've aged, the more I've realized, you know, I don't, I actually don't think probably that the email sign-off was for the benefit of the people receiving his email. I think if he was wise, his email sign-off was probably for him. Because here's why. If you write an arrogant, domineering, boastful email, and then you see auto-populated your signature, grateful and amazed, you're going to have to go back and edit that email, right? Walter, I just cannot believe how stupid you were this week at work. Grateful and amazed, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't work. You're going to go back and have to rewrite the email. Walter, look, man, I love you. This wasn't good, but I am here to help you because people have helped me in my life and have taken time with me. And the Lord has not given up on me when I've made mistakes. And so I'm here to help you, grateful and amazed. Right, that, that, you can write that email. And I wonder how much of our lives, if we, if we signed off the day, grateful and amazed, how much that would cause us to go back and, and wanna re-edit our lives. At the end of the day, you think anything I did today, the Lord gave, gave me the ability to do it. Anything I was part of today that was good, Lord gave me that ability. We should be the most grateful and amazed people on the planet as Christians. Knowing the Lord has shown us endless grace. And we should be amazed continually that the Lord even calls us to be in a relationship with him. Despite our sins and flaws and weaknesses. That's what you're looking for in yourself and in leaders. Third, look at their life. Look at their life. Now, the, the third problem in Corinth is that they are looking for the wrong kind of life when it comes to a Christian leader. They're looking for a particular profile of a life. And so Paul uses this illustration in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become with, rich. And without us, you've become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's being sarcastic here. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Now here's the illustration he's using. Because he knows probably a number of the people in this Roman colony of Corinth had been former soldiers. And so they'd be very familiar with when Rome would go out and conquer somebody, they would have a big victory parade when they came back. And it would be the general and probably Caesar first and then the general and then all the lieutenants and then all the grunts and they would be in this bright shining armor and the armor and, and vestments would only get shinier the, the closer you were to the front of the line, right? So Caesar, spotless. The generals, spotless. Lieutenants, most, I mean, they did their best to clean the scuffs out. The grunts, listen, their armor's all scuffed, but it is shining. They are marching and behind them would come the captives that they captured and all of Rome would be cheering all of the generals and booing all of the captives. And finally, at the very end of the line would come probably the enemy general or the enemy king, beat up, bloodied, humiliated, all their fine garments torn, destroyed. And they would march them right into the Colosseum where they would let the lions tear them apart. And so here's what Paul is saying. You're looking for leaders at the front of the line. You're looking for the shiny, the bright, the beautiful, the powerful. But we, the apostles of Jesus Christ, are at the back of the line. And if that's your paradigm, if that's what you're looking for, you're looking in the wrong place. He's using these, these sarcastic questions to get them to see. He's trying to wake them up and say, guys, do you see what you're doing? 
the very apostles that Jesus Christ has sent to the world, we are at the back of the world's line. But you're all the way up here looking at the front of the world's line for leaders. Do you see the problem with this? And here's the main issue. The Corinthians had taken on the mindset of their culture and had lost the mindset of the cross. Which is why Paul goes through this list of, of, of suffering and being demeaned to help them see the contrast here, right? Because, because look, here's the reality. As we said last week, we believe as Christians in health and wealth. We believe in prosperity. But we believe that through Christ, health and wealth and prosperity are only glimpsed now and will be made full and perfect when Christ returns, Right? But for now, this life is the path of the cross. Look, we, we, we walk the same path as Jesus Christ himself. We don't get to skip over the path of the cross just to glory. The path of the Christian is the path of the cross. The path of, the, the path of suffering, of loss. But through it, there is glory and eternal life. Right? That, that is what Paul is saying. So true leaders... True Christian leaders are cruciform leaders. Leaders that have been shaped and molded and who walk the path of the cross. The path of the cross where suffering comes before glory, where death comes before new life, where dishonor comes before honor, right? This is the path of Jesus. And when you walk the path of the cross, when you've been shaped by the cross and not by the culture, then, then you, you, like Paul, say this. We, we get reviled, but we bless in return. How does that make any sense? Only through the cross, as Jesus was reviled and blessed in return. We are persecuted, but rather than fighting back, we endure for the sake of the gospel. We are slandered and demeaned across the ancient world, and yet we and treat and beg and put the gospel in front of people, asking them that they might believe in Jesus Christ, right? This is what we're looking for. And so the third secret of amazingly successful Christian leadership is this. You measure success. You look for people who measure success by the cross and not by the culture around them. You look for people who are often at the very back of the line, not the front, not the bright, not the shiny, and let me ask you to make this more personal. Would, would anyone look at your life and assume, yeah, they are a cruciform person. They're walking the path of the cross. They're walking the road of Jesus. Or do you, you do everything you can to try to be at the front of the line, the bright, the beautiful, the glorious in this life? Do you endure? I mean, this is what Paul is asking the Corinthians to consider. Do you endure hardship for the gospel? Or do you flee from it? Do you labor hard and without fear of losing your dignity in the eyes of the world? Do you bless those who revile you? Do you endure persecution faithfully? Do you entreat those who are slandering you? Are you living an upside down life that only looks right, right side up when looked at through the lens of the cross? Look, there should be an ability for somebody to watch a film of your life and for somebody to say, this does not add up. This doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why they're living the way that they are. If your life makes sense without the cross and hope of glory in eternity, something's off. Something is off. 
And so you want to look for, Paul is saying, you want to become and you want to look for Christian leaders worth following whose lives make no sense in the math of the world, but only make sense in the math of the cross. All right, fourth and last, look at their authority. Now, the last thing the Corinthians misunderstood was the nature of authority. And Paul's appeal may at first be unusual, but I want to explain it. Look at verse 14. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Look, he's trying to be gentle and careful while still trying to wake them up. I'm ready to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now you might think, okay, I don't understand. Why is he bringing fatherhood into this? Well, let me try to help. So in the ancient world, virtually every son, there were no career fairs in the ancient world. Let's just say it that way, first of all. Right? Nobody's like, I wonder what I'm going to become when I grow up. I don't know, man. You're going to be whatever you can to make money and not die. That's what your career plan is. And so in the ancient world, virtually every son followed the trade of his father because there was no real social mobility. So think about it this way. Following your father wasn't a burden. Often it's like, I don't want to, like all the Disney movies are like, I don't want to do what my dad did. I want to have my own path. Right? That's like the the American, you know, version, Disney version of life. This was, it was the opposite in the ancient world. Following your father was a gift. And being disowned by your father was, was the worst thing. Because, because here's why. Not only was it relationship, not only was it social standing, but think about it this way. If your dad was a trader, a tradesman, he, he was a merchant, following your father meant that you then, as you grew up, got to know all of his friends and all of his connections and knew where to get stuff and knew who would help you and you had people that would help you and you'd receive all the goodwill that your father had accumulated in his life and you'd receive that and continue his trade after he was gone. Or if you were a carpenter, right, you'd learn the task of carpentry, but also you would, you would gain your dad's reputation for good work. You'd gain his special designs. And when you took over his business, all of your father's clients would come to you, right? You were set up in a sense. And so the dream really of every son growing up was to follow the path of his father. And the fear was that their father would disown them and just say, no, I'm not going to let you follow me. I'm not going to teach you any of the the tradesman tricks in my merchant alliance. I'm not going to, you know, that was the bad thing. And so Paul is saying this, look, you have a lot of people that may give you advice in Christ, but, but I was your father in the faith. Like I brought the gospel to you. I was there. I helped baptize some of you and and, and the trade I taught you, the riches I handed over you, over to you, was the path of Christ. I taught you how to follow Jesus. I set you up to be able to, to gain and glean and rejoice in the riches of Christ. I set you up to follow the path of Christ. Therefore, imitate me. Follow the path. Take up the trade. Be Christians as I taught you to, to be. Right? That's what Paul is saying to them. Now, Paul is also not afraid to use his godly authority, but he uses this godly authority in an utterly different kind of way. And this is so important for us because in our world today, there's two big extremes when it comes to thinking about authority. There are those that are enamored with authority, right? With 
machismo, with, with domineering figures. Their, their, their favorite boss or company leader or politician is whoever is the most domineering and, and like, yeah, boom, get him, yeah, get him. Like watching like a prize fighter, take, you know, get him another shot, shot to the gut, right? That's, there is a part of our culture that, that's enamored with that kind of stuff. But similarly, there is an opposite. They, they, they're allergic to authority. They see any authority as evil. Any authority, from law enforcement to teachers to church leaders. And the virtuous thing then is to just overthrow authority. My favorite sign is the resist sign. Resist what? Everything, right? Rebel against everything. All authority. Protest everything. Reject everything. Tear down all the authority. Those are the two extremes we're living in. But Paul here gives us an utterly different picture of authority. The Bible's picture of authority is radically different. Now the Bible's picture of authority is that that authority at its core was made good, right? Authority is not a result of the fall. Authority is something God made in creation. He's the king, if you didn't notice. He's the king, the sovereign one. And his authority, rightly used, caused creation to flourish. He, he gave then humanity, Adam and Eve, authority over creation that they and their rule over creation might cause it to flourish. But then, here's the problem, the fall corrupted authority. Adam misused his authority. Eve desired to take his authority. And all use of authority now is tainted and shaped by sin and corrupted. But in Christ, authority begins to be redeemed. So Paul's showing us the solution. I'm going to go this briefly. Maybe I'll do a blog about this. But, but he does three things that are very unique. First, he recognizes that he is under Christ's authority. He says, he refers to his teachings in Christ. Meaning, this isn't the teachings of Paul, fundamentally. This is the teaching of Christ. So he's under authority. He's under the, the body of teaching from Christ himself. Second, he has the affection of Christ for them. So it's not just like, you people need to shape up, you know. And then he doesn't, I hate you people. That's not, that's the opposite of what Paul is doing. Listen to me, because you're annoying me. That's the opposite of what he's doing. He, he calls them, even in this moment, beloved. Beloved. He has the affection of Christ for them. And third, he's a man who is following Christ himself. Right? He, he's just shown his resume. Man, I'm walking the cruciform path. This is how I'm trying to follow Matthew 5 and 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what I'm doing. And therefore, he can say with a clear conscience, be imitators of me. Right? He, call, he uses his authority. He says, look, I'm under authority. I have the affection of Christ for you. I'm walking the path of Christ. Follow me, guys. Follow me here. And I think that, that is what we're looking for. So the secret number four is just this. Call others to follow, real leaders call others to follow them as they follow Christ. Now, this applies to us in a couple ways. First, we're all under authority. We're all under authority, whether you recognize it or not. Therefore, we should value and follow those who lead us on the path of Christ. Now, look, this is just my heart as as a pastor here at the church. Man, I I think we, in many ways at Cross of Grace, have had a culture where we follow and we appreciate and follow godly Christian leaders. And I'm super grateful to have grown up in that culture. Not with perfect leaders, but leaders who are trying to follow the path of Christ. And this is, this is my heart, especially for sort of the, the, 
the millennial Gen Z generation, the, the predominant view is just reject all authority and distrust anyone in authority. And look, for good reason. Sin has tainted completely authority in our world. But look, if we find and have, by God's grace, godly Christian leaders, oh man, those men and women should be held up and encouraged and followed. I, I mean, we want to build a culture at Cross of Grace where godly Christian leadership is celebrated. And Paul says, that's a good thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now, Paul's not perfect, as he readily admits, but where he is following Christ, he can be so bold as to call people to follow him. And as our leaders are so bold as to call us to the same thing, we want to joyfully follow them as well. And then in authority, in various places and positions, God has entrusted us with authority. And so we should seek to imitate Paul here. And I'm not saying you're an apostle, uh, you are not an apostle, but but there is, if I could say it this way, there is a godly way a mom and a dad can sit down with a 12-year-old and say, son, we love you, but God has put us in your life as your parents and you have to listen to us. Right? That's not an ungodly thing. In many ways, that's a good and godly thing. But we want to make, if the, we're in that position of authority, we're having that conversation that we make sure we're under authority, that we love them as Christ loves them, and that we're following Christ. You don't want to call your kid and be like, stop being so angry. Right? That's not helpful. If we begin with authority, we want to use it in a way that Paul would say, yep, that's what I'm talking about. And more importantly, in a way that Christ would say, yes, that's what I'm talking about. All right, so let me end with this. This is a call, church, to Christian Moneyball when it comes to leadership. We, we do not want to look for the kind of leaders the world is looking for. We want to look for something different. And we don't want to strive to become the kind of leaders that are at the front of the line that the world's like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. No, we're probably going to be at the back of the line. Everyone else is looking at, are they confident? What's their net worth? Are they beautiful? They're just as blinded as the major league was, looking at big swings and swagger and intangibles. But here's what we're looking for. Are they servants? Are they stewards? Are they grateful and amazed? Do they rightly understand and use authority? Do they live a life that looks upside down according to the world, but right side up when you look at it through the cross? Two very quick applications here then. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna do it. Two quick applications. One, I'm going out on a limb, so just go with me here, okay? This is probably not where you think I'm gonna go, but I'm gonna go there anyway. Application for singles looking for a spouse. You're like, whoa, okay. Brother and sister in Christ, if you are looking for a spouse, play Christian money ball. And here's what I mean by that. Everyone is looking for, are they tall? Are they hot? Are they successful? <laughs> right, all that same stuff gets you lots of responses on your dating profile or whatever. I don't know how that stuff works, but... You look, let me just encourage you, you look for, are they a servant? Are they accountable? Are they live, live, living a cruciform life? Look, I, and let me just, special word to, because we call men to be spiritual leaders in their homes, I think as scripture calls us to do. 
let me just encourage single sisters in particular. You are looking for a godly man you can follow and that you respect. Not a guy who perfectly is compatible in all of your whatever dating matrix thing there. I'm not saying you marry somebody that's just like the ugliest person you could find, but at least they're godly. I'm not saying that. You gotta be attracted to them, okay? So don't hear what I'm saying. But I am saying this. Let me just encourage you, play Christian Moneyball. Look for different things than the world looks for. Because I, 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 look, man, they're going to get old and wrinkled and not as fit. And they're going to get hurt. And there's going to be moments like with Jen and I where my back is so jacked up, she's carrying me up the stairs. <laughs> right? This, that's the reality. So, so many of these things that the world's looking for are going to fade with time. Look for the things that won't fade. And men strive to become that. Look, if you're a single brother and you're like, well, I'm looking for a girl. Listen, stop, stop talking about what you're looking for in a girl and try to become the kind of man that kind of girl wants to follow. Somebody who's a servant, somebody who's accountable, somebody who lives a cruciform life. Second application category is just the husbands and dads. Look, we, we encourage men to be spiritual leaders in their home as God has called them to be. And look, this is what we're trying to build. Look, men, let me, uh, let me just see if I can say it this way. Often we'll have men over the years come in and their family's a wreck. And what they will come in with in defense is, look, I provide for my family. I'm there in the house in a way that my dad wasn't, okay? So I don't know what your big deal is. I don't know why my wife isn't just listening to me. Or I just got a promotion at work, right? Often, this is just relatively common, guys will come in with here's all the things I'm doing that are marks of success in the world and are trying to show them and saying, well, look, my family should be going well. Look at this stuff. And what I want to lovingly say to you, brother, if you're there, is you're looking for the wrong things. You're cultivating the wrong things. Look, I, I think this passage would say in a way, I want you to stop throwing around your job title and look at the title as a servant and steward. Would you qualify for that job? Are you known in your family? by your wife, by your kids, by those who have a window in your rela- in, into your family life as, as someone who's living a cruciform life and leading your family to live a crucified, cruciform life? Are, are you leading your family to bless when they're reviled, to endure when they're persecuted, to entreat when they're slandered? Are you doing it? Right, this is what you're called to become. It's what we're all called to become, and I, I place myself under this. Now, let me, let me end with one particularly hopeful thing. There is a benefit that goes beyond just what happens inside the church when we build these kind of leaders. Because I think when, when we build this kind of leader, a Christ-like leader, a leader uh, uh, that, it, that is successful according to the measures of the cross, it is unique and compelling to the world around us. And one last story here is, is growing up, my dad um, was served on a number of nonprofit boards. And at one point... I remember growing up that he spent a ton of time on the phone one weekend and maybe two weekends in a row. And I finally was like, man, dad, what are, why are you on the phone so much? Why can't you, you know, hang out and play or whatever? And I remember him just describing as much as I could, like, okay, son, look, I, I serve on this nonprofit board and there's a conflict among some of the people that could really hurt the mission of the organization and it's gonna keep people from being helped in the city. And so I'm on the phone trying to help be a peacemaker 
And then I asked him about it years later, and he said, yeah, I remember that. That, that was a lot of time on the phone. But he, he recalled that one of the people he was trying to be a peacemaker with told him at one point, like, Joe, I, I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know why you care so much. And he basically said, look, I, I'm doing this because I care about the city and because I'm a Christian. And, as a, and, and, and they basically, I think if I remember right, they even said something like, if this works, you won't even get any credit for it. Because <laughs> they're just thinking, why are you doing this? You're trying to, aren't you trying to get up to the front of the line? And he just said, no, I, I'm a Christian. And, and he described what it meant to be a Christian for him. And he had an opportunity then to describe what it means to follow Christ and what it means to be a Christian to somebody that probably wouldn't have gotten a chance to hear the gospel otherwise. And so let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, this is countercultural, but this is intriguing and beautiful in the world around us. And may we be as intriguing and strange as the gospel would call us to be, that attention might be drawn to Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand up and let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that, that you would write these things in our hearts, Lord. Lord, in this moment as well, I, I just feel a, a prompting perhaps for your spirit to, to pray for a particular group that as we've been going through this, they were just convicted that maybe the way that they've been at home or at work is not the way you'd call them to be. So Lord, I, I just want to pray for them. Lord, may you remind them that the way that they get right with you, the way to get right with God is not to go out and become a good leader and then come back and reapply. But rather, because of the cross, you've already spoken the word of forgiveness over us. If we've repented, you've already spoken the word of of reconciliation over us. So in this moment, as they come to you and just confess, Lord, here's the ways I've I've fallen short here. Lord, may they see the Father with his arms open wide, running running to re-embrace them, as it were. I pray that they would not trust in doing more and trying harder to get right with you, but remember that through the cross, we've already been made right with you for everyone who is in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we as a church, Lord, may we be a church that looks for different things and what it means to be a quote-unquote successful leader in the world around us. I pray that we would feel and be upside down according to the world around us. I pray that we would build a culture at Cross of Grace where we love and celebrate the kids' ministry teacher who works a long week and then spends time seeking to help kids on the weekend. I pray that we would cheer for the hospitality team leader who's serving behind the scenes that nobody ever even knows that they're in charge. Lord, I pray that we would be people that, that love and are thankful for the mothers and fathers in the faith that we sit across from, that instruct us, and that, that they may not even say, follow me as I follow Christ, but man, we are following them. May, may we celebrate them. May we thank them. May we pray for them. May we be a place that, that loves and encourages and holds them up for those many cups of co- the conversations over cups of coffee or late night talks on the phone. And that we would look more and more and more as a church like you as we follow the path of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was reminded on that 